The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. When Peter gave me a call last week, uh, I'm assuming to fill in for some illustrious speaker who pulled out at the last minute, he caught me in the middle of some reading on humility and leadership. And I've been reading a few books on these two topics lately because I've been convicted that, well, I'm neither humble nor a very good leader. But I desperately like to be both, and I've begun to sense a sort of connection between the two. And so, in fact, uh, I've been reading, uh, and in fact, much of the first half of my talk is, is a rehearsal, in fact, of uh, John Dixon's arguments uh, in this excellent little book that I highly uh, commend to you called Humilitas. Uh, and I'm hoping to also throw in the occasional original thought of my own for good measure. You know, typical in this type of literature are stories like this one about four-star general Stanley McChrystal. In 2009, he ranked number two in Time magazine's Person of the Year. And before he was removed for making unfavourable remarks about the Obama administration, General Stanley McChrystal was commander of all the forces in Afghanistan and one of the most celebrated leaders in US military history. A Harvard graduate, uh, he runs over 10 kilometres a day, uh, he eats only one meal a day and sleeps uh, about four hours a night. And so you might say he's one of those high-achieving types. Well, during a surprisingly frank press conference in London, shortly after his appointment as commander of those coalition forces, McChrystal offered an intriguing one-word summary of his approach to the insurgency in Afghanistan. Uh, quoting him, I found in my experience that the best answers and approaches may be counterintuitive. The opposite of what it seems you ought to do is what ought to be done. So when I'm asked the question, what approach should we take in Afghanistan, I say humility. Which of course is quite a surprising statement. And yet some of the most influential leaders and innovators in human history have displayed this surprising character trait. Religious leaders like Buddha and Jesus, um, Social activists like William Wilberforce, uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, great scientists like Sir Isaac Newton, and also some of the most remarkable CEOs of the century, all displaying this surprising character trait of humility. Well, look, in several of the books I've read, uh, they've quoted the Stanford University business analyst Jim Collins, uh, who's also the author of the best-selling leadership tome, Good to Great. And what he did, he conducted a five-year study on the leadership of, of companies who financially outperformed the market at least threefold over a 15-year period. And when Collins and his team interviewed people who worked for these leaders, well, they were surprised, shocked even, uh, to hear continually words uh, that were used to describe their leaders like these ones. Quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, and so forth. Quoting Collins, these leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They're more like Lincoln and Socrates 
than Patton or Caesar? So for today, three questions. Uh, Firstly, what is humility? Uh, Secondly, why would anyone pursue it, especially in the context of leadership? And what does Jesus Christ, arguably the most influential person in human history, have to teach us about leadership and humility? Three questions. What is a humility? Uh, Why be humble, especially as a leader? And what does Jesus Christ have to teach us about leadership and humility? So firstly, what is humility? I guess the best place to start here is to recognise that humility has an image problem. When many people think of humility, they think of weakness, of low self-esteem, or of a a doormat pushover type character. For instance, Winston Churchill, who who had perfected the art of the clever put-down, once described a political opponent as a modest little man who has a good deal to be modest about. In 2016, the uh, then President-elect Donald Trump uh, said that he was more humble than people knew, uh, but he chose not to show it as a business strategy. Or the great Muhammad Ali, who once quipped, at home I'm a nice guy, but I don't want the world to know it. Humble people I've found don't get very far. But this uh, popular misconception about humility as a sign of weakness or or low self-esteem, it's it's patently wrong. To define humility in this way is incorrect. So how then might we define it? Well, what is humility? Well, in terms of etymology, the word and concept behind it come from Greco-Roman times. In Latin Greek, the word used uh, to describe humility means low, as in low to the ground. And so used positively, the term means to lower yourself, the noble choice to redirect your power in the service of others. And along these lines, John Dixon uh, offers this definition. Humility is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Or more simply, you could say that the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in the service of others. And so very far from the popular misconception of having low self-esteem or being a doormat, true humility assumes the dignity or strength of the one possessing the virtue. Uh, Following the lowering etymology of the word, the one being humble acts from a height and makes the noble choice to lower themselves using their power in the service of others. So what is humility? the noble choice to redirect your power in the service of others. True humility, if you like, is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Which, of course, is very difficult. Uh, T.S. Eliot, who read philosophy at Harvard and, and the Sorbonne, said of humility, humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder from the desire to think well of oneself. And he's right. Humility is a difficult virtue to attain. As soon as you think you have it, you probably don't. And if you're convinced that you don't have it, you still may be a long way from attaining it. Being humble is difficult. But then if humility is often confused with weakness and is a very difficult virtue to attain, Well, why be humble, especially as a leader? 
Well, briefly, five reasons you can see them on the outline. Uh, firstly, humility is logical. A little humility is just common sense. Uh, none of us are experts at everything. And the more we do become an expert in our given field, the more we appreciate the vast body of knowledge in which we have no training whatsoever. Or we could just stop and look up at the night sky. Billions of constellations and galaxies. Or consider the equally, equally limitless universe of microbiology or particle physics. And what we do, it's all very humbling. Why be humble? Well, firstly, given our place in the grand scheme of things, how little we know, how small we are, and how short we live, humility is just common sense. It's logical. Secondly, why be humble? Well, humility grows us. I think this is perhaps the most obvious outcome of being humble. Being humble means that you will learn, grow and thrive in a way that the proud have no hope of doing. And the logic here again is simple. People who imagine that they know most of what is important to know have kind of sealed themselves off from learning new things and receiving constructive criticism. They don't grow. And so not only is humility common sense, it grows us as people. Well, thirdly, humility is attractive. I think this point of Roger Federer, so humble in his estimations of himself and so full of praise for his opponents, whether in victory or defeat. Humility is attractive. And then there's Sir Edmund Hillary. In 1953, he conquered Mount Everest with his Sherpa friend and guide, Tenzin Norgay. And what they achieved, especially with the kind of equipment that was available in those days, must stand as one of modern times truly great physical achievements. Of course, Hillary was duly honoured. Uh, he was knighted. He was made New Zealand's High Commissioner to India, Nepal and Bangladesh. And then in 1995, he went on to receive the British realm's highest award, the Order of Garter. Apparently, there's only 23 other individuals who have uh, received that award. But more important for Hillary were his efforts to give back to the Nepalese, something of what they'd given to him. And so through the Himalayan trust that he established in 1960, he built hospitals, airfields and schools. And he epitomised the noble choice, I think, to forego status, deploy resources and use influence for the good of others before himself. John Dixon relates a story that I think captures the essence of Sir Edmund Hillary's outlook. On one of his many trips back to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of tourist climbers. And they begged him for a photo. They wanted a photo with the great man, and Hillary obliged. They handed him an ice pick so that he looked the part for the photo and began to set up. Well, just then, another climber passed the group and not recognising the man at the centre, walked up to Hillary saying, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Let me show you. Well, everyone stood around in amazed silence as Hillary thanked the man, let him adjust the pick in his hand, and happily went on with the photograph. We're repelled by pride, but greatness is somehow enhanced by humility, because humility is attractive. Uh, fourthly and fifthly for the sake of time, let's treat these two together. Humility is persuasive and it inspires. Now you might sort of be a bit taken aback here and, and think that it's perhaps a little perverse to pursue humility in order to persuade. 
And I actually think that people see quite quickly through false humility. But the fact remains that those who are humble, those who take the noble path of lowering themselves in the service of others, are often amongst the most persuasive and inspirational people. Aristotle, in his work on rhetoric, explains this phenomenon by teaching that the most important component of persuasive speech is a person's ethos. That is the perceived character of the speaker. People are more likely to listen to and follow someone they perceive as putting the interests of others above their own. They trust them and they follow them. And look, the head of TED, uh, perhaps today's uh, version of, of modern sort of rhetoric, uh, Chris Anderson, he agrees with Aristotle. He says that at the heart of, very best, of the very best TED Talks, he finds not narcissism or pride in one's personal achievements, but humility, the pursuit of an idea bigger than ourselves. In fact, it's these talks that make the best TED Talks because they both persuade and inspire. Uh, quoting uh, Chris Anderson, head of TED, we're strange creatures, we humans. At one level, we just want to eat, drink, play, and acquire more stuff. But life on the hedonistic treadmill is ultimately dissatisfying. A beautiful remedy is to hop off it and instead begin pursuing an idea that's bigger than ourselves. It's Chris Anderson, head of TED. Pursuing an idea that's bigger than ourselves. The noble choice to redirect your power in the service of others. Both persuades and inspires. And so in addition to being logical and an important avenue for personal growth, humility is attractive and both persuades and inspires. So I think it's not hard to see how humility benefits both our person and also our leadership. Look, finally, we turn to the leadership and humility of Jesus Christ. But why turn to him? Well, for two reasons, really. Firstly, in 2013, Time magazine voted Jesus Christ the most influential person in human history. A leader followed by billions down throughout the centuries who was characterised by his humility. And secondly, and this, this is very interesting as well, historians point to the influence of early Christianity uh, when it comes to bringing uh, to the surface the virtue of humility. You see, back then, the, the prevailing culture in the ancient Near East was one characterised by the values of honour and shame. And so at the top of their value hierarchy uh, was honour, and way down the bottom was, was shame, the best and the worst things possible. Ancient life wasn't shaped around the values of right or wrong, or truth or falsehood, or even life and death. The chief end in life was to obtain honour and avoid shame. If you needed to lie to achieve that end, well, so be it. If someone needed to die to achieve that end, so be it. The teaching of Jesus and his example turned all of this on its head and changed the course of Western civilization forever. And so briefly today, I thought we'd turn to an early Christian hymn about the humility and leadership of Jesus Christ uh, that was no doubt sung amongst early Christians. And you can refer to it here, uh, sort of the poetic section of this, uh, this Bible reading, which I'm going to work through the first half of that now. Uh, and it comes from one of the earliest Greek texts on, on this topic of humility. In fact, this section is that. And it was written to a Roman colony of Philippi around the middle of the first century. 
And if you look there, it begins strikingly in its condemnation of pride and narcissism before commending humility, the noble lowering of self in the service of others. Uh, Reading there from verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Uh, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, Uh, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, in a society whose highest value was honour through self-promotion, it's hard to express how countercultural uh, this statement was. And yet it was exactly through living in this manner that Jesus Christ amassed a huge following and changed Western civilization. The humility of Jesus Christ changed the world forever. And it's his example that the early Christian church followed. Uh, the passage continues there in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so if humility is the lowering of oneself, and the noble choice of redirecting your power in the service of others, then Jesus Christ is the very definition of the word. In ancient times, since Plato, the the human body was understood as a prison for the soul. And so for an immortal deity to take up residence in the prison of the flesh, well, it was ludicrous, unthinkable. But Jesus voluntarily lowered himself and took on human form. He was born as a human, but not as a a king in a palace. He was born as the son of a carpenter in the feeding trough of an animal. And physically, he was unremarkable. The Bible says that Jesus had no beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. And Jesus went on to work with his hands as a carpenter, quietly and unassumingly for the greater part of his life most likely supporting his family after his father died. According to the Christian worldview, this means that the creator and the sustainer of the universe worked for 25 years in obscurity as a carpenter before spending only three years in public ministry. And that time was characterised by himself pouring himself out in the service of others. Humility. The king of kings and Lord of Lords came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Humility. The noble choice of redirecting your power in the service of others. He didn't lord it over us. He didn't abuse his power. Instead he took the fall for us on a Roman cross dying the most shameful death imaginable in ancient times. And this according to our passage was his greatest act of humility. Verse 8, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ's life exemplified the noble choice of lowering yourself and redirecting your power in the service of others. And his greatest act of humility in that he gave up his life in exchange for ours. And so if humility is attractive to you, 
then true humility begins with him. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, Humility is the proper estimate of oneself. And true humility begins with acknowledging the distance between us and God. Understanding just how far Jesus stepped down to walk amongst us. Understanding the impossible chasm that our sin presents between us and God. And and just how far we all fall short if we attempt to cross it on our own merits. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to cross that chasm on our behalf. Uh, Because of the humility of Jesus Christ, uh, by following his leadership and putting our faith in him, the chasm is bridged, the debt of sin is paid, and our slate is wiped clean. And with those early Christians, we're now free to respond in kind. Philippians 2, 3-5, Because of Jesus, in humility we value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. In our relationships with one another, we have the same mindset as Christ. The bigger idea than ourselves is him. Thank you for, first of all, letting me speak to you and also then uh, asking some really great questions uh, on this difficult uh, topic in a sense. It's a really difficult uh, virtue, I believe, that uh, it's more like a journey and certainly uh, not a destination for for pretty much everyone everyone except Jesus. Uh, The first question is one that my wife asked me immediately uh, on hearing that I would speak to this topic. Uh, In the background is my wife works for DLA uh, Piper. not as a lawyer, she's head of uh, media and communications, uh, but obviously works in the industry. And immediately said, well, what is the role of self-promotion, which is this question? Uh, can self-promotion be done humbly? And Laura and my wife but also went on to speak about people who were excellent at self-promotion, uh, but perhaps uh, over and above their sort of level of, of substance, if you like, and professional skill, uh, and certainly the humility that they carry around. Not, not particularly in the industry generally, perhaps, or I don't know. Not to, not to cast aspersions. Every, every industry, I'm sure, is exactly the same. But so the role of uh, self-promotion is an interesting one. And I guess here, perhaps the best thing to do is to point to Jesus. Uh, so would we, would we say that Jesus was a self-promoter? And I think we, I think we would say that. I think we would say that Jesus uh, was a very public personality uh, and he pointed to himself in, in the sense that he also publicly deferred to his father uh, and the mission that he was sent to. So he would promote himself, but it was less about him and more about uh, his purpose on earth. And so I think that probably gives us a, a good uh, middle ground in terms of, of self-promotion. I think it, uh, following Jesus' example, self-promotion is fine, uh, but in the sense that uh, you are promoting your cause, if you like, and not your own uh, personal achievements and goals and and sort of self in an an arrogant kind of way. Um, So can self-promotion be done humbly? Well, I believe it it can when you're promoting something bigger than yourself, and so you want to make a lot of noise about it to to inspire and persuade people to, to follow you. Second question. Does anyone want to come back on that one? I don't know if you usually... Perhaps that was helpful. I'm not sure who asked it. You can remain anonymous. Can, we, can you discuss humility uh, in the context of, same-sex, of the same-sex marriage debate uh, and the postal survey? And so in short, I, I think I can. 
In the Bible, uh, we're taught to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope uh, that we have, but we're to do so with gentleness and respect. And so I think, I think gentleness uh, is, is the key term there, and respect mixed together. Uh, and for mine, there, there's certainly um, you know, synonymous terms, aren't they, with the concept of humility. And so, without going into the whole debate, um, I certainly think that the Bible, the Bible calls us to uh, be, prepared, be prepared to speak out on issues, uh, but to do so in a manner that uh, raises up um, Jesus Christ and Christianity as opposed to um, yeah, starts a fight and, um, if you like, takes away from the brand of, of Christianity. Uh, personally, uh, I uh, voted no. And my wife uh, abstained uh, from voting. I think those... Again, I'm not speaking for the Bible Forum or for the Anglican Church or for Churchill. Uh, I think those two options are, are warranted in the Bible. Uh, I can't draw lines to uh, the yes vote, but uh, some people I respect can. Um, personally, I think the best way to uh, deliberate for yourself on that issue is to pan back a little bit from the specific issue and think about sin in the context of Romans 1-3. to And in deliberating over that. Obviously the issue of homosexuality is discussed there, uh, but also um, the universality of sin and the fact that sin uh, is sin because it, it has negative detri- detrimental effects on people. Uh, but also on the flip side there, it's quite interesting that God seems to give society over to sin uh, in a bit of a hands-off approach. So I think somewhere in there, for mine, is, is a, a useful place to, to, to think about sin, pan back, and then perhaps this specific issue. Second question on this page, uh, is humility an integral part of how we're created or is it something God has given us in response to sin in the fall? And I think, uh, going back to Genesis 3, uh, just 1 to 3, we are all created uh, in the image of God. And so that attractiveness of humility uh, that I alluded to earlier, perhaps, perhaps you don't resound with that, but I suspect a lot of us do. I think that's because uh, we are patterned after God. Now, sin... Uh, marred, distorted, uh, broke to some degree that pattern. Uh, but there are still shreds of it in us uh, and I think we respond to that. And so I think uh, humi- humility uh, is an integral part of how we're created. But in many ways, sin uh, is the antithesis of humility. Uh, so sin is a self-centred, uh, proud, self-seeking uh, I guess, sort of ruining of that humility. But anyway, plenty to think about there. Third question. And again, if anyone wants to come back, please feel free. How does the importance of humility uh, penetrate the public mind when so much of our public media and media, celebrities, etc., rewards the vain, proud and self-promoting? How does humility have a future? I guess when we look back at Greco-Roman times, um, you know, it, was, it was sort of a similar context in, in many ways. And uh, when I was talking to Peter on the phone, he spoke about the rise of narcissism in you know, universities and in leadership. And you can certainly read um, the scholarly articles online about that type of thing as well. Uh, but for mine, I think uh, because of the, as I said, innate nature of humility and the innate goodness of it, I think that uh, the rise of narcissism in many ways just provides a wonderful counterpoint and point of difference to truly humble people. And of course, uh, you can rise and do really well in leadership um, by nature of your innate giftings uh, and your structural authority. Uh, But I would contend uh, that even if you have risen around those two things, um, removing pride and 
adding humility will make you a greater leader in your field. So I think uh, it's an opportunity. I, I certainly believe that humility has a future. It's a Christian question, this one. Uh, speaking about uh, Jesus' Beatitudes, uh, uh, sort of those blessing statements in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the, and off Jesus ran. I think there's one more at the end of John's Gospel as well. Um, relating to uh, blessed are the meek and blessed are the poor in spirit. And the question is, well, how do these, uh, do these Beatitudes relate to humility? And I, I, guess I think they do. Uh, but it's interesting to think, blessed are the meek. Now, I think in Isaiah 60 somewhere, uh, it says that God looks upon the humble with favour, and so I guess there's blessing there. But interestingly, John Dixon in his book spoke about the practical benefits uh, in this life of being meek, of being humble. Uh, and I think we listed some of them there, didn't we? Uh, in terms of being persuasive, being well thought after, being seen to be of good character, but also learning and growing as a person. And being poor in spirit uh, is exactly that as well, isn't it? Um, being poor in spirit uh, is thinking of ourselves as we ought, uh, which I think Charles Spurgeon really defined as humility, didn't he? So, two more pages, but one of them has three questions. <laughs> so let's see how we go. Time's right, Peter? Yeah, two minutes. Just ring the bell before this last hard one, all right? Yeah. It's good to be humble, but what if no one notices and you don't get any credit for it? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, a really honest question. Um, I would say a lifetime of humility will get noticed. Um, but suppose it, it doesn't. Um, as I said before, God looks upon humble people uh, in a really favourable way. So from a, a Christian perspective, uh, it is a wonderful uh, virtue. Pretty hard though, I think, to live, wouldn't it, uh, without your wife, your spouse, your friends, your colleagues, your anyone noticing it. And that idea of credit is worth a little bit exploring, um, given that the, the trade itself is about others and, then, and not yourself. Uh, secondly, uh, do you think humility is learned or is it a characteristic some people are born with? It's sort of like the last question, I would answer yes and yes. So I think humility is innate in our makeup, made in the image of God. Um, but clearly, uh, it is a journey, a pursuit, a, a pathway uh, that we don't quite arrive at. So. And as I said there, I think the way, apart from some of those rational arguments that uh, I offered, uh, the surest, in fact the only pathway to humility is, uh, well it begins with Jesus Christ and uh, accepting him into your life, believing him and then following uh, in his footsteps. Uh, thirdly, Jesus is shown as humble and yet he expects his followers to worship him. How do they fit together? It's a, it's a complex question. Um, again, Jesus always deferred to his father and he although he was also God so that I don't know if you've explored how much you've explored the Trinitarian idea of um, one God and three persons um, it's interesting that in life anything that we find good uh, we tend to praise we have a nice meal we go home and tell our wife about it or our husband uh, we see something laudable in the workplace and we, we speak about it and so, God, who is the ultimate source of all things good, uh, it's, a, it's a natural instinct uh, for us to worship him. And in fact, it's a wonderful celebration. If you have a nice meal, you talk about it, and it, it continues the enjoyment of it. 
So I think we are wired uh, to worship God and I think uh, it is what we will do uh, on into eternity and it's part of the definition of, of, of heaven in a sense that if he is the source of all things good and caught up in that is the worship of him in terms of enjoying the good, uh, then I think that's how uh, humility and worship uh, go hand in hand together. Uh, finally, last question. I was just joking before. Uh, shame is still a big part of our culture and other societies as well, such as Chinese culture. Very much so. Uh, I was speaking perhaps a little bit um, simplistically around the sort of Western stream of thinking. Uh, does humility follow shame or are they linked together in some way? Look, I think, I think they're separate. Um, I think humility might follow a fall, but I think shame is, is something else. And I think that the Gospel of Jesus Christ has a lot to do in alleviating shame and releasing us of that burden. Uh, but in brief, I think that they are two separate issues. Uh, hope that was helpful. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.